0: West Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. All right, well, welcome to a great celebration day. This is actually in the church calendar Palm Sunday, and if you're not familiar with the church calendar, this is the day we get to celebrate the beginning of the Easter week, leading up to the greatest celebration. uh, that we uh, remember in the Christian tradition. And the Palm Sunday, if you're not familiar, familiar with the story, is actually uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem for that final week. And he actually comes riding into Jerusalem on this donkey that has never been ridden before. And that's really important because every single person who was lying in crowd that day, cheering him on, singing Hosanna, would have recognized this as a prophetic fulfillment that this is the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And In the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life in Matthew, it says this about that circumstance. It says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Mark's eyewitness account adds this line. It's saying, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city, it says, was stirred and asked, Who is this? Now imagine this. This is really quite a sight. People are basically, cloaks are basically like our sweatshirts. So people are basically taking their sweatshirts off and laying them on the ground and cutting palms from the trees and laying them on the ground to create this red carpet for the king of kings coming in. They're shouting, they're singing Hosanna, which means save the Savior, the one who's going to save us, and they're just shouting their, their heads off at him. And, uh, you know, we obviously get the name Palm Sunday from Cutting Palms because everybody knows a dirty, smelly sweatshirt. It's just Sweatshirt Sunday doesn't, doesn't fly as well, right? Right? So Palm Sunday is more beautiful, especially for us up north dreaming of Florida and the warmth and thinking about snow coming this Tuesday again. But imagine, there's thousands of people. Jerusalem is normally 30,000 people. This is the biggest festival of the year in Jerusalem, and it swells to well over 150,000 people. And they've got people along the route, in spite of the Roman garrison being there, saying, The king is coming. The one who's going to restore the kingdom is coming. This is a loud, brash act of praise that goes on, that stirs the entire city. It's really, in the minds of the people there along that road today, this is a defining moment. This is a defining fulfillment of purpose for them. It's it's God answering prayers that have been prayed for centuries. Palm Sunday in its its essence is really about God fulfilling purpose. Today, as we wrap up our series on powerful purpose, this text itself actually reaffirms a key point that we've talked about throughout this series, and that is this. Purpose for the Jews and the followers of Jesus in this Palm Sunday passage was about a destination. It was about the coming kingdom, their kingdom being liberated from the Romans and establishing their own people and nation again. But Jesus, even as great as this crowd was and the stir of that day, had a much greater impact in mind, an impact that he had in mind of multiplying the life of God by the Spirit of God through each and every one of our lives, touching one person at a time to millions of people across every Ethnic, social, cultural divide. His vision was a whole lot bigger. And as just as Jesus started that movement of God, just like we talked about last week, he started, about, started that movement of God with a very small focus, one life at a time. His first three years were lived primarily focusing his attention on the 12 that he lived with and walked throughout the day with. You see, when purpose is defined not as a destination or size, but as multiplying the grace and the life of God in people we befriend, then the goal for what Jesus wants to accomplish is actually far greater than we can imagine as he makes us, every single one of us, ambassadors who multiply his goodness all around. But we face roadblocks, don't we? We dream of purpose, and we have a hard time getting started. And one one of the roadblocks I think we face in getting started with our purpose in life, especially a God-sized purpose as we think about it, is that when we start talking about that, it seems a little bit grandiose, right? We start thinking big, and it begins to make us feel just a little uncomfortable. Like, I mean... So like last week when we talk about the fact that someday we want to multiply services and multiply campuses and multiply churches, it feels out of our reach. It feels too big almost. And, or when you guys think about your purposes and, and maybe some of you are dreaming about establishing a, a, a multi-million dollar business or I don't know what your dream is, but sometimes our dreams feel so big or like when we closed last week's service with... Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and then we say, what is God's dream for you? That just feels a little grandiose sometimes to us, doesn't it? And we have a little bit of a hard time getting going. Well, let me illustrate even more clearly this roadblock through a little video clip. There's a movie called Aquila and the Bee. I don't know if you've seen it. Aquila is this bright, beautiful young girl in high school, and, and she lives in the projects and she goes to a school where the students are largely underperforming to a significant degree because of the cultural barriers they their face. Akila happens to be this amazingly intelligent speller. She can spell anything, and so she gets involved in spelling bees. And I know I've just lost all the guys because spelling bees are right up there with Captain America in the Final Four, right? But actually, this is a really inspiring, interesting story based upon a true event And the clip, as we will see it, is after some difficulty between her professor, a college professor who is tutoring her, and her, uh, we see this clip happen uh, demonstrating what happens between the mentor and the protege. Enjoy. Isn't that the truth? Sometimes we are afraid of me. We're afraid of saying out loud the dreams we have, the purpose we believe God is calling us to. Let me reread what she read. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is your light, not your darkness, that most frightens you. You ask yourself, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, or talented, or fabulous? And actually, who are you not to be? Because you are a child of God. You are made in the image of God. And your playing small does not serve the world well. You were born to make manifest the glory of God in whose image you are made. It is not just for some of you. It's for every one of you. It's for every one of us. And as you let your own light shine, you unconsciously give other people the permission to do the same. As you are liberated from your own fear to dream and engage to the good purpose God has for your life, the Holy Spirit through you will free others to engage their purpose as well. You see, if our purpose is God's calling like we believe And we've got to move past those feelings of, oh, this just feels like bravado. It feels beyond us because God is actually calling us to something bigger than ourselves, something that we as a church together can make an impact and have that has ripple effects far beyond our own lives, far beyond the four walls of this church, out and extend far out into our community as we multiply the life of God. What keeps us from realizing this strength in ourselves? And in the good mission God has for us together as a church, what keeps us from realizing that strength? Jesus and Paul actually, I think, define another roadblock that sometimes prevents us from keeping, from realizing that strength. And they actually use an interesting word called surrender. Now, that's not interesting to a lot of us, right? But they use various words and metaphors to describe that, right? In Romans 12, 1, Paul uses the word offering, the idea that we give an offering of our entire being to God, that we're all in with God. Therefore, it says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The message paraphrase. It's not a translation. It's just a guy's opinion of what this says. is really well written on this. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing that what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Let me ask you this question. When you think of surrender, when you think of giving an offering to God, what do you think of? Well, if you're like me, you probably think about giving away something, right? You give up something, and you no longer have that something under your control to care for your own needs or to spend on what you want, or or you lose control, you give up control to someone else. And that conjures up in our minds this whole idea of surrender, when we think of it that way, conjures up this dis-ease, this fear or anxiety in our life, doesn't it? Henry Nowen, a a famous uh, theologian from the past century, Uh, right before he died, took a sabbatical near the end of his life. And uh, he recorded his findings, his thoughts from that sabbatical in a a book uh, appropriately titled, Sabbatical Journey. Uh, One of his favorite parts of that journey was he uh, had established a friendship with the Rodleys. The Rodleys were trapeze artists from South Africa who travel all over the world performing. And he established a really close friendship with them. He became very fascinated by the relationship between the catcher and the flyer. I mean, when you go to see a trapeze, you're really odd, and we're all really odd, right, by the flyer, the person who's this daredevil who lets go of the trapeze and does all these amazing tricks in the air, hoping to get caught before a a terrible fall, right? They let go and they have to abandon themselves into into the arms of the catcher, stretched arms out, waiting to feel the strong hands, hoping they aren't going to fall. And no one sitting with them one day, and you see a picture of him actually being held by them, uh, asked them, what's the number one key to success in your act? And he said the answer was stunning. He said the flyer, they, said, they answered him, they said the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. And they went on to describe, they said, if the flyer actually tries to catch the catcher, it throws the timing of the whole feet off and they won't be caught. They'll fall. This means, in this act, the catcher is the one who does the real work. The catcher, not the flyer, is the person who determines success of the act. The flyer must simply surrender themselves, herself, and trust the catcher. Think about it this way. We are the flyers. And God is the catcher. We're comfortable on this bar. We don't want to let go of it. Yet we're created to be flyers. And God, this ultimate catcher, swings towards us and calls us and comes to us and says, I've given you a vision. I've given you a purpose. I've given you something beyond what you can imagine. Good, beautiful to be a part of. Will you just release the bar? Will you engage it? Will you take the risk and do it? And let me take you to a new place. Yet all too often... We don't even get started on what God calls us to do because we are afraid of letting go. He's the creator. He's the all-knowing, powerful catcher, and we're afraid to let go. Or we let go and we panic. We try to do the catch ourselves with bad results. What do you need to let go of in order to be all in with God? What do you need to let go of in order to, to fly as God intended. What fears keep you from from gripping that bar instead of letting go? In our culture, I think we could point to at least three bars and we'll just go through those quickly that end up being roadblocks to us because we don't want to let go of them. One is a bar of status. We often seek status in our position, our career, approval, or power, or knowledge, or material possessions, or image. And the idea of Jesus coming to us in these things and asking us to surrender control of these things in our life is scary to us. I mean... And we've got good examples, right? Just this last week, what, hap- what happens if my beliefs cost me my dream? What happens if my beliefs cost me my job? Like the CEO at Mozilla this last week, whose political beliefs cost him a job, even though the record says that his treatment of other of employees and inclusiveness was very kind, his beliefs still cost him his job. What if it means I have to downsize in order to get my finances in line with what Jesus wants? And what if it, what if it means I have to become open and honest with my weaknesses and... And I have to actually tell other people and admit and repent of some of my sins and be honest with those about my failure. Another bar is a bar of security. And not uncommon for us to pursue security through things like perfectionism, just having to constantly be right and good enough or, or control or, or we want our family to be just what it needs to be to make us feel secure. And if it's not, it, we don't feel security. Or our relationships or our possessions or jobs or, or even addictions, what's the basis of your security? And what threatens that sense of security in your life? It's an area of surrender that God is inviting us to surrender, to let go of. Uh, there's a third bar, a bar of unresolved conflict and emotional pain in many of our lives, anger, unforgiveness. Uh, holding on to past hurts or bitterness that tends to put barriers between us and relationships? Who are the family members that we avoid or, or the coaches or the neighbors that we just don't want anything to do with because of hurt or bitterness or anxiety? Who are the people in your life to whom your heart is hard and you've put a wall up? You've distanced yourself. See, we hold on to these things for a lot of times good reasons. We've been betrayed, we've been abused, we've been abandoned, we've been wounded. And, but the problem is this unresolved stuff in our life causes us to clench this bar and, and then we project that pain on relationships in the future or circumstances in the future anticipating that same thing from happening and, it, and we hug tightly to this unresolved pain. And so we haven't flown as God wants us to flee, fly free. Of those things, we we have yet to experience the exhilaration and the, of, of of taking the risk and God catching us and helping draw us into this greater giftedness and this greater place of love and freedom in our life. Um, we talk about those things sometimes in fear, but maybe fear doesn't relate to you. Maybe you're a person who you say I'm not really that afraid of anything, but yet you know you know you're not all in with God, right? There's things that are barriers for you in your relationship with God. So let me talk about the roadblocks in a different way. Maybe you can relate to this better. To be all in with anything, you have to say no to certain things and yes to others, right? I mean You know that. You know that in your business. For the pursuit of the things that you need to be involved in, you have to focus. You have to say no to certain things. You have to say yes to the things that lead you to the results you want. You do that all the time. Athletes, high-level athletes do it all the time. They say no to eating certain foods. They say no to certain activities so they can focus on healthy things and train, right? We know that there's a sense of having to be all in. And I know a lot of you know what that's like because you wouldn't be as successful as you are in your careers if you hadn't been all-in in in those settings and surrendered and focused in those things. You even say it like this. You say, I wouldn't be where I'm at. I wouldn't be as successful as I am if I hadn't been willing to pay the price to be all-in, right? And yet the barrier, I think, that we often face is actually found in those very words, those very words we say where you have to be willing to pay the price to be all-in. I mean, for one, once you paid the price enough times in your life, you don't want to pay it again, right? That's not a very attractive thing in life. We don't want to do that. And besides, it's also this incomplete, this incomplete distortion of what surrender really is and what being all in is really all about. Let me illustrate that through, an, uh, through a story about my old boss. One of my old bosses, he's a collector. He's got a stamp collection. He's got a collection of guns. He's got A collection of cars. He's got some beautiful Mustangs and a 57 T-Bird. He collects about anything. His favorite uh, show on TV is Antique Roadshow. And when he travels, he's always looking for estate sales or different things he can go to to find collectibles. He just studies about it all the time. So he was a missionary for much of his life and uh, didn't have a chance to save for retirement because he didn't make enough while he was on the mission field. And so when he got back, he's not only trying to scrape and save as much as he can, but he's also using his hobby of collecting to try to build a retirement. One day, he was traveling on the road in, in a small town, and there was this estate sale that he stopped by while traveling. And he was going through what they had there, and all of a sudden he noticed this little case, and it was, had five little penny black stamps in it. Penny black stamps are the first stamp ever made in the 1840s, and uh, there were millions of them made, so they're, they're fairly accessible. I mean, you can still get them fairly easy if you want to, but this one is a case that was obviously made. It appeared to have been made in the 1800s. It was a sealed case, and it had five stamps nicely preserved in it, and they were asking about $15,000 for it at this estate sale. He did an initial inspection. the quality looked good, everything looked right. Maybe, in fact, actually, he thought maybe the price was just a little low. So he was thinking, "Ah, this would be a good deal. I could probably make you know, I could probably turn it around tomorrow if I wanted to for two to 10,000 dollars more, so it's probably a pretty good thing. So, and plus, he'd only had one penny black in his, in his stamp collection, so he, he was interested in having more. To make sure, he went out to his car and grabbed the magnifying glass he always kept with him for just such an occasion because he was a stamp collector. And he went out to, he went and looked at it, and he started looking at it very closely. And everything was looking good. He got to the fourth stamp, and all of a sudden, he looked. There's a defect in the stamp right on the image of the queen. And he remembered reading somewhere that there were about 100 stamps made during the first couple of years that were done by a nicked typeface. And... Uh, Very few of them were still in existence. And this image happened to be in exactly the right spot. He sat there and he thought, could it be? Could this possibly be? He picked up the case, looked at it more, looked like it had been sealed, looked like it had never been opened, no signs of being opened. It looked to be vintage 1800s sealed case for a high-end stamp collector. And if true, this stamp collection was actually worth several hundred thousand dollars, not fifteen thousand dollars. But he couldn't figure out how to get the money. He and his wife had been through some difficult medical expenses and some other things going on, and he certainly didn't have the cash available on him that day or even easily accessible. And so it became this question, should I go all in? Should I, should I go for it? And he ended up taking a big risk. He called his retirement investment person and said, can you hurry up and send some, uh, sell some funds? Don't worry about the taxes and penalties, and next day I me the money. And he did. He bought it. Got it valued. And it was valued at over $300,000, maybe as much as a half a million. This story gives us a different perspective on being all in or surrender. Do you think it was worth him taking the risk? Certainly. I mean, we'd all say a no-brainer. In fact, we just all wish we had the knowledge that we could actually know something like that. And then not only know something like that, but we wish we had the ability and the guts to actually take the step and do it, right? I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer to all of us. But Jesus inviting us to surrender is really also a no-brainer, just like this partially fictitious story is to illustrate a point that Jesus also makes. Now my boss actually is a my old boss, is actually a collector. He's an avid stamp collector. He's got his fifty-seven T birds. He always does what I'd said. He just this particular stamp story was made up. Sorry. But it's the idea that surrender, being all in, is really a no-brainer. It's trading our own control, our own blessings for far more extravagant blessings. It's an invitation that Jesus gives us in following him in our purpose, yes, to absolutely surrender every area of our life to live as he wants us to live and the way he wants us to to live it. But that surrender is a magnificent exchange. I mean, just remember back to our, our discussions of Ephesians over the past few months. He asks us, this exchange is going from being in control of our own life and alienated from God to being his kids, to being co-heirs with Christ, to walking out of our poverty into his wealth and to his mansion as his kids. It's out of control. It's walking out of our control of our own destiny and all the stress that brings to us To trusting in God's pre-planned good works that He's got ordained for us in advance to do. It's, it's walking out of our need to be loved and affirmed and finding the people will do that into the security of being completely, absolutely forgiven, completely accepted, fully, 100% loved by the God of the universe. It's walking out of our own stress over how we think about and manage our own finances into learning God's way of work, God's way to earn money, God's way to spend money, and God's way to give money and all the blessings and prosperity that brings to our lives. What are we holding on to that prevents us for making that amazing exchange in life. Jesus describes the exchange further in Luke 6. He says this and in kind of an interesting passage. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Skipping down to verse 35, he says, But, and now Jesus, after this, but describes what all in love, what surrendered love is. He says, But, love your enemies, do good to them. Skipping a little further, then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Verse 37, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, a big good measure, not a small miserly measure. And it, it begs the question, do we trust God's goodness? Do we trust God's generosity? A good measure pressed down and shaken together, not like the bags of chips you buy, right? All the bags of chips you buy are like three-quarters empty because they were full when they filled them and after they've shaken all, they've gone down. But No, Jesus is saying it's a full, generous portion that God wants to give you. He does the shaking down. He does the pressing together. He wants to your container to fill up and fill as much as possible. The measure that you give Him and more and running over will be poured into your lap for, you, for with the measure you use... It will be measured to you. With the measure of surrender you use, the exchange will be measured to you. Now that's still really generous, even if our measure is pretty strong. I mean, God says in this text, He says that God pours out His kindness on the just and the unjust. Why does He do that? Because He loves us the way He's asking us to love other people as well. But God also says that if you're all in with me, if you are surrendered and generous, if you would love your enemies, if you would give great generosity even towards those who don't deserve it, wow, what an exchange. You're going to receive, pressed down, shaken together, running over. God's inviting us to let go of this trapeze bar of all of our security and instead, to be grasped by Him, flying as He wants us to be, to trust His promise, to trust His goodness, to trust His provision, to trust His good purpose for our lives. What do you need to surrender today? i kind of summarized on a slide some of the things, but there may be other things for you that you need to surrender. When you walked in, there should have been some of these papers nearby you. Hopefully there's enough for everyone. If not, just raise your hand and somebody around you will pass you one because I'm sure there's enough. We're going to take just a couple moments and I really want you just to reflect for a moment and ask God, what keeps me from being all in? What do I need to surrender? Whether it's about your purpose or about your finances or about your marriage or about your relationships or your family. It doesn't matter. What, what What keeps you from just surrendering all to God. And I want you to write it on the paper and then in a couple of minutes I'll give you further instruction. Those serving communion could come. I'm going to invite you to communion. Communion is the uh, the essence of this exchange that we get when we surrender to God. If we surrender to Him and choose to lay down our lives for Him, we trade our sickness for the stripes He took to heal us. We say we we trade our punishment for His stripes He took to take that punishment for us. We trade our filth for the cleansing of His blood that He spilled for us. We trade our being distanced from God for being His kids and being intimately close to a God who sends His Holy Spirit to us to not just let us know He's real, let us know He loves us, but to guarantee that we can navigate this life to the final healing, the full perfection of everything. He gives us the power. It's this magnificent exchange that we get when we surrender to Him. We give Him our rags. He gives us our riches. Can I just pray for you and then let's come and receive communion while we worship. Lord, we just ask that you would come now that your Spirit, as you promised, is here. And I know that. I sense your presence here. I ask that you would just come to each and every one of us right where we're at. Even if we're trying to surrender something, we've struggled over and over again and we keep taking back, Lord. Thank you that you welcome that surrender today. And I pray that your Spirit would come and go deep in us and help us to release, help us to trust, Help us enjoy being caught by you, flying with you, experiencing your your extravagant blessing in our life. Lord, come and speak your blessing over each and every one of us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.